welcome our uh, fellow investors, market watchers, those of you who are obviously interested in the market. Welcome, welcome. We've got a lot to cover here today. And first and foremost, we are going to watch a short video of this interview done. In fact, it was the best uh, piece of media I could find that's talking about this Coinbase lawsuit and what it means for the industry, how, how in some weird way Coinbase, their coin is actually outperforming Bitcoin right now and what that means, why the bets are going there, uh, but also how the entire industry and all coins and tokens have actually dropped uh, in value since this, uh, aside from a couple, uh, since this lawsuit's been filed. So uh, let's go ahead and hear about this SEC lawsuit, and I'm going to bring this up so everybody can see it. And I'll do the same on my TikTok feed. So let's go ahead and share this. You guys watch from here. We got more color on the clash between the Securities and Exchange Commission and Coinbase before the SEC filed legal action against major U.S. crypto exchange in June. If you tell us more, we're joined by our senior reporter, David Holler. So David, give us some context here. Yeah, Rochelle, so as you mentioned, the SEC sued Coinbase at the beginning of June for allegedly operating an unregistered securities exchange. Now, in the SEC's lawsuit, they named uh, 13 different cryptocurrencies, including ADA and Sol, which they identified as crypto security assets. Now, according to this uh, story from the Financial Times from earlier this morning, uh, the Coinbase's CEO, Brian Armstrong, said that ahead of launching the legal action against the crypto exchange, the SEC had asked uh, Coinbase to delist more than 200 of its crypto tokens. And this essentially is everything but Bitcoin is, is what uh, Armstrong was, was highlighting. And that is obviously uh, far different from the 13 or so coins that are named in the lawsuit. And the implication here is, is pretty clear. It's, um, Armstrong has sort of argued in his statements is that, um, you know, if Coinbase had uh, agreed uh, with, with the SEC and hadn't sort of uh, opposed it and uh, this case hadn't gone to courts, um, it would have essentially set a legal precedent for the crypto industry, which um, would have stilted it as far as uh, it, how much it could grow in the U.S., um, so again, this goes back to the legal murkiness between um, what a, you know whether or not a cryptocurrency is a commodity or a security in the U.S. And um, there's not a clear law decided there. The SEC believes that most everything except Bitcoin um, in the crypto asset class is a security, um, and this is obviously now playing out a series of lawsuits in the courts. Uh, the most, uh, I guess, the latest stage uh, lawsuit of these we would bring up would be uh, the Ripple case against the SEC. Um, so it's also interesting um, that owning Coinbase stock at this point has kind of become like a regulatory bet for investors on the crypto industry, having sort of a more positive um, uh, regulatory outlook in, in the near future. Um, it, it's particularly interesting if you look at Coinbase's stock compared to Bitcoin. So um, there's also this uh, ETF situation that's been going on. BlackRock and a number of other asset managers have filed for a Bitcoin ETF, naming Coinbase as a major partner in, in those offerings. And that, of course, needs to be uh, approved by, by the SEC. 
But um, around the time of the lawsuit and the BlackRock uh, filing, Coinbase's stock has uh, significantly outperformed Bitcoin. And that's interesting because for most of its, um, in, since its inception, for most of its trading history, uh, Coinbase's stock has uh, well underperformed Bitcoin. And so we're seeing a huge uh, outperformance over the month of July. And we're going to continue to watch that, obviously, on Thursday when the company reports second quarter earnings. And, you know, we'll want to hear more about the regulatory side of things. It is interesting, though, that Coinbase, um, you know, their financials are important as ever, but it does seem like uh, the, the legal uh, clash right now is really defining how the stock performs. All right, so a lot to cover here, right? So wrapping things up and to give you some personal perspective, SEC sues Coinbase. Right before that, uh, may it, so in the lawsuit itself, lists about 17 coins and tokens. But in the conversation that they had, basically said, you need to shut down all 200. Well, Brian Armstrong responds and says, and that wasn't covered in this video, but he basically says, hey, this would shut down the entire industry. This would kill crypto as we know it in the U.S. had I conformed with the SEC's suggestion and just shut down everything. Now, I want to give some, some uh, perspective here. Coinbase and many other industry leaders have been begging the SEC for guidance and direction this whole time. Call it a warm bluff right they they come in and they say you know we we want to be regulated and then it puts all this pressure on the sec and these these regulatory bodies to make the right decision and you know um like it kind of puts this uh cloud or the safety net so to speak underneath these exchanges because then they can go back and say well we we did everything we could we were, were asking the regulatory bodies to give us advice well surprise surprise SEC comes in and does what? They 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 do that. They come in and they basically say, "Well, uh, okay, here's the advice: shut down every coin except for Bitcoin." And so, as a reaction, the market reacted. And if you look at uh, total value of pretty much the entire crypto industry from the time that happened to today, we've had losses or we've had significant drawdowns and total market cap coming out of the market. This is not great news for the crypto industry. However, if you look at uh, Coinbase's coin, it actually has been going up. And Coinbase's coin compared to Bitcoin has actually gained, like there's a big gap in the gains. Now, I can give you some speculation on this. There's a lot of internal things that exchanges can do to prop up their currency, just like uh, we've had currency wars literally with countries. You can do the same thing uh, with your own currency, especially if you've got certain volume bots or you're, uh, you're internally trading it or cycling volume. There's a lot of things you can do to help stimulate a coin. So maybe that's what's happening with Coinbase uh, in, like, in front of all this news. Is they're trying to make their coin look really good. But as a whole, this is... This is really scary uh, information if you're a crypto enthusiast. If you're someone who's uh, holding crypto assets, NFTs, any type of investment, in, you know, I've, I've invested personally in a lot of blockchain uh, projects. And this is like a dark cloud 
hanging over the industry right now. And it seems like the moment the SEC got their ruling on XRP, which was in XRP's favor, basically said, no, no, XRP is not a security. You're wrong. It's uh, lawsuit dropped. Yes, the things you sold to these financial institutions might have been considered security, but what you guys did to the individuals on exchanges was not. The SEC obviously did not like that as immediately following that, they went on an all-out attack on the crypto industry. And now we're left today kind of wondering, like, is this for real? Well, I want to give you guys some background on this because a lot of people are hearing this for the first time and they're going, this sounds crazy. Like, I've never heard of the government ever doing something like this before. And, you know, su surprise, surprise, like, how would this ever happen? Well, uh, I grew up in the Forex industry when it was emerging, and there were literally hundreds of brokers, thousands, actually, I would say thousands of these brokers uh, in the US. And this was happening after, you know, we moved from desktop to laptop, you know, it was a big movement uh, in the US, and internet speed started spiking, and it made it possible for traders and investors to really have an edge even from their own home to trade because internet speeds were high enough, latency was good enough that they could enter trades, get real-time execution, and then get out, right? You got to remember, this was 10 years ago. Well, guess who came in? Uh, CFTC, uh, along with their partner. Well, at first it was the SEC, and then Congress said, no, 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 CFTC is going to be over this. CFTC came in and was put in charge of regulating the uh, foreign currency market. Well, at that time, we had thousands of brokers. In fact, I had friends here. One of our friends who owns CoinZoom uh, started a company called IBFX, which was, you know, obviously similar industry. Makes it makes it's no surprise to me that he started CoinZoom as well. Um, but companies like IBFX and all these other uh, foreign exchange uh, brokerages, within them, a matter I would say of three years, completely disappeared. And what I mean by that is they were sh either shut down, forced to sell, or move out of the country. Well, what have we seen with the crypto industry and all these exchanges in crypto? Very similar, right? We've had probably 50 emerging crypto exchanges, uh, probably thousands on a micro scale. Most have left the country. We have a couple left standing. And the SEC is just coming down on these guys. And I don't know what was actually going on with FTX, but my guess is the bet was with FTX. They were supposed to be the standing company. They were supposed to be the standing uh, exchange. And what happened in the Forex industry is everything has now been whittled down to two major exchanges. And anything that is a brand or face is likely white labeling or fronting one of those exchanges. Everything else has, has been litigated, sued by the CFTC, uh, pressure on the market through overregulation to the point that, frankly, if you don't like XRP, if you don't have $100 million to fight these guys, you're out of business. And so imagine all these crypto companies right now, like if you're a crypto business, and you're seeing all this, and maybe you have a small exchange or you're offering some type of uh, utility in the market, and the 
SEC's basically just full out on an attack in the industry. And you just saw XRP win their lawsuit. And you're like, yes, for the industry. And But on the other side, you're going, how much is it going to cost me to defend this? Uh, it's probably a pretty nerve wracking time to be someone who's heavily involved in crypto. Now, so personally, and obviously this is not financial advice, I've been hedging uh, my bets in crypto since uh, it was mid or early last year, meaning I, I pretty much got all out of all of my, my hard earnings or holdals, right, and, and most coins. It doesn't mean that I don't have other coins uh, that I'm still holding in the background, but I pretty much have liquidated, hedged, or have placed puts, like put options against most of the uh, stuff that I have. And the reason is, be is because regulation, until the dust settles and we kind of start to see who the emerging winners are going to be, uh, it's going to be pretty volatile. It's going to be a rocky, uh, rocky road. So there's the update on uh, Coinbase and the SEC and kind of this cr craziness that, I mean, history just repeats itself. I'm still trying to figure out who's calling the shots here. Like, Who's the big company, the big money behind this that has some type of a complex, like the military industrial complex, but we call this the financial crypto complex or something. But someone's got their fingers in with the SEC and they've got their eyes on who the winners are going to be and who the losers are going to be. And one thing I will say before I get off that I think is worth watching really close is Bitcoin. And everyone's always been talking about this Bitcoin, 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 but all these other coins came out kind of diluted the idea. Well, I found it really interesting that the SEC literally said all 200 tokens and coins, they did not mention XRP, which just got a favorable ruling. The courts literally just said, no, this is not a security. But for some reason, they didn't say Bitcoin and XRP. And this is all in the midst of BlackRock and a couple other places filing their um, Bitcoin ETFs, which would uh, they'd be working hand in hand actually with Coinbase for those ETFs to work. So there's a lot of unraveling that's going to happen here. I'm not quite sure what the SEC wants to see out of this. Do they want uh, this exchange to only have like five tokens and coins and then be the, the housing place for these ETFs? Is the ETF just going to get shut down completely? But any of these moves, news, or announcements about Bitcoin will either be really, really good for the coin or really bad. So there you go. All right, next up. So moving into what's next, um, I wanted to talk to you about this. I'm going to bring up this picture for you guys to see. I, the market has actually been somewhat, I would say, somewhat stale this week. Not like stale in a bad way. Stale is always a good thing if you're someone that's holding something or you're in an asset class that you, uh, you're you uh, hoping to not see drop, right? And so there has been some movement uh, with some of the things that are happening in the market. But this, I, I really found this fascinating. Most of the general population, because of inflation, knows who Jerome Powell is. We just know who this guy is. And this sounds really boring, right? It's like, boy, we're talking about these old people with white hair. You know, I mean, Alan Greenspan was just mostly bald. But we're talking about these old dudes, old gals, white hair. Why does this impact me? 
And then we look at our bank accounts and it's like next to zero and we're wondering what's going on. Well, we've got to get educated on why these guys are important, why what they have to say radically impacts our lives because Jerome Powell and the Fed chair has likely been the single most impacting group of individuals in this country, uh, the value of the dollar and how inflation has been going than any other group and any other person. A lot of people think, oh, well, it's the president. It's the U.S. president and their cabinet. No, it's not at all. In fact, the Federal Reserve is a group that likes to stay and I would say is pretty bipartisan, meaning they don't take favors, they don't head nod to whoever's in the presidency because they have their own agenda. And their agenda is to have a really strong monetary policy to keep the value of the dollar uh, going and growing. I mean, I would say that's their, their top priority. Make the dollar last and make it last over time. So I thought this was interesting. Confidence in the chair of the Federal Reserve. So this is the public being polled about the person who's at who's the face of the Federal Reserve. And you can see that Alan Greenspan back in, you know, what was this, the 2000s, um, he served from 1987 to 2006. Dealt, dealt, I don't know how many of you guys were there, but dealt with Black Monday, the dot-com bubble, which I would actually compare a lot of similarities to today, and the September 11 attacks. So he was uh, the Fed chair during that whole time. And you can see he had 74% approval, 74%. And these little yellow things are recessions. These little yellow things that you can see up here, these are recessions. So he he dealt with a recession. Then we went to Ben Bernanke. Uh, his recession was the 2008 recession. He was right in the middle of it. And his approval rating went anywhere from like, I don't know, low 40s to almost 50, even during the recession. Then Janet Yellen came in, had the shortest term out of all of them, um, was the first woman to serve as U.S. Uh, Secretary of the Treasury as well. Uh, and then Jerome Powell came in, approval ratings went up quite a bit during the uh, 2020s because everyone was getting stimuluses, lots of money was circulating, but now is at 36%. And I, here's what shocks me about this. It sh this, sh this really shows me how how little the public knows what's actually going on uh, with our economy. This shows me how, uh, how confidence is rated. And I would say the U.S. confidence is probably rated by handouts. The U.S. confidence is likely rated by like, how much money am I getting from the government? I don't care about the debt. You know, as long as I can get it today, I don't care about what's going to happen tomorrow. I would say most of these ratings have to do with my personal sentiment, how things I feel are going in my wallet and in my bank account it has probably very little to do with anything else. I, I actually think out of all four of these candidates, Jerome Powell has probably had one, probably one of the hardest uh, economies to deal with. The 2008 recession, I actually think was less difficult to manage than this high inflationary period. And he will likely soft land this. Mark my words. Maybe this is my prediction I get to leave with today and I'll brag about it uh, by the end of the year. But 
I think Jerome Powell has nailed it. As much criticism as he's gotten around in, uh, inflation and raising rates to combat that and using the federal tools to get the kind of, they call it, bring this plane down and have a soft landing. I think he's actually going to do it. We have not had an actual recession yet. We have not entered that territory. That does not mean that you're not feeling it. That does not mean that you know there's not recessions in certain uh, micro uh, economies or in certain uh, professions or industries. Doesn't mean that there are areas definitely struggling right now, and inflation is hiding a lot of the uh, recessionary numbers. But I think he's going to land it. He's at 36% approval. I don't think he'll ever get credit for what has happened and what he's done. Uh, however, if a soft landing happens, it will be the greatest victory that I think out of all four of these people have ever done in the history of the last 23 years since 2000. Um, so anyways, giving my buddy Jerome Powell a little high five uh, from the Market Pulse podcast, <laughs> I guess. But um, I like to watch Jerome Powell and what he says. I do think in, in line with this, I think it's important to know that I think that there will be one more interest rate hike that will happen this year. A lot of people are saying it's not going to happen. It's not priced in. We don't have inflation in check yet. And so the only way to combat that and let the other inflation uh, inflationary things start to settle with the rise in rates that we've done over the last two years uh, it's going to take 12 months to 18 months for that to finally settle in. So even this last rate hike, we're not going to see the full impact of it within 12 to 18 months. So a lot of this is like plant a seed today. You could call it fixed inflation seed so that it goes away a year from now. And so inflation is not going to go away in the next month, two months. This is not a pill that we can you know, put in the ground and, and uh, or a plant that can just sprout into a huge tree overnight. It's going to take time that the life cycle of these rate hikes typically take 12 to 18 months. And so we're not going to really until end of 2024, we're not going to see the, the end and maybe even an adjustment in where inflation is going. So I would plan on seeing inflation around higher for longer I would plan on seeing rates higher for longer, and I think it's going to go into the end of next year. So there's there's your tips. Uh, what do you do with that as an investor? Well, I'm looking at bonds uh, quite a bit. And if you're not looking at bonds and you're interested in like, well, where can I park my cash? There are places you can actually put your money right now and get 5 6% in a high-yield savings account. So you've got liquidity. Uh, 24, 48 hours, you can pull your money out. And at least at five to 6%, guys, you're at least combating inflation, right? You're at least getting the growth that like, we're probably going to have five to like five, four or 5% inflation over the next year. So there's my report on good old Jerome Powell. Next up, we're going to dive into something I talked about earlier today uh, or, or earlier this uh, week about the national debt problem. I begin a lot of comments about this and everyone likes to get political. And I just want people to see how non-political the US debt actually is. Everyone goes, oh, well, it's, it was 
Trump's fault that we had to have this, you know, debt ceiling rise. No, it was Obama's fault. No, it's Joe Biden's fault. These freaking politicians, blah, blah. It's, guys, it's just not correlated. I've looked, I cannot find the correlation. And in response to that, this chart I, I thought was brilliant. So I hope you guys could see this on my TikTok. But this, this was an article written and the headline says, U.S. debt rises irrespective of who is in the White House. And then on the bottom, it doesn't show who the presidents were, but it shows red being Republican, blue being Democrat. So you can see from the 80s to the early 90s, all Republican, right? That was probably the Bush time. Then you've got uh, mid 90s to 2000s in blue, uh, 2000s to uh, 2008 in red. Then you've got uh, another blue. I wish they had the actual dates on here, but you can kind of see this, right? And then in green, these are debt ceiling suspensions. So these are times in our history that we've done debt ceiling suspensions, meaning we've kicked the can down the road and we said, we're not going to, we're going to allow the government to pay all of its bills so that our uh, people that we owe debt to, we don't default on. And we just did another one, as you guys know, early this year, where we kicked the can down the road to 2025 so that it doesn't mess with a presidential election, or at least that's why we said we did it. But you can see consistently since the 80s, there has been a rise, a very consistent rise in our U.S. debt. And it happened with every president. So, yes, did the last one cause a huge spike? Absolutely. But we also had one of the largest pandemics we've ever had. And you could even go back and say, well, you know, back in the 90s to 2000s, we had a Democrat in office and it was completely flat, right? We weren't raising the debt hardly at all. And then you could say, well, it really starts spiking with, and it's just like, you just make the arguments both ways. We're both guilty. This is a, this is a problem in the US that we have politicized our dollar, meaning that we buy votes now, both sides, we buy votes and those votes cost money. Meaning if I have a donor or I have a group who helped me get in as a president, I owe them. And that might be someone coming from the solar industry. It might be someone coming from the oil industry. It just doesn't matter when their candidate wins, they get these favors back, laws, executive orders put in place that radically favor these massive donors and corporations. And then what do we do as a government? We because we've bought in those votes, we we create these stimulus packages. The Inflation Act that just passed is a complete joke. It's like, you know how you fix inflation? You stop spending money. You don't create a, a bill this big filled with billions of dollars in expenses that we're going to spend carelessly in the future. That's not how you fix it. That's how you cause inflation, is the government spending more money than it has. So... This is a problem. There's, there's no question about it. Um, what I would be looking for, and I, you know, I have very small influence uh, around like how to make this happen. But if there was something I would be looking for politically to make a difference, it would be both sides looking for a fiscally responsible candidate for the next election, period. Unless you like how inflation feels, unless you like how your dollar value dropping feels. If you like that, then great. Just vote for the next president that gives you the most. 
and we'll just keep doing this de-dollarization. And at some point, your dollar will be worthless, and we'll all be trading and buying crypto assets to hold ourselves together. And this nationalization of the government taking care of us in a lot of ways will uh, stop uh, happening. So anyways, um, I've said enough about that. Let's move on to my next topic. As we move on, we've got, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I want to do this. I want to show you guys current market valuations. I could spend an entire hour on this topic, but I want to get you caught up because this week we had something happen on the Buffett indicator that uh, you need to be watching. It was one of the fastest spikes we've had in over the last year in current market valuations. And most people don't know to use this as an indicator. Most people don't know that this is a, a really an incredible tool to kind of see past all of the cloudiness and all the smoke and mirrors. It's a tool. Uh, in fact, let me let me go through it and then we'll back out of this because there's some other things on currentmarketvaluations.com that I want to show you. But let me show you just the Buffett indicator and then we're going to back into it. So for those of you who are just checking and just following, the Buffett indicator, uh, aka the Buffett index, is the ratio of all total U.S. stocks. They actually take the uh, Wilshire 5000 and they run it over GDP. So aggregate U.S. market value right now is $48.97 trillion, almost $49 trillion in U.S. market value. What does that mean? Well, it's the total market cap or every dollar that's in a stock right now added up. Then they take GDP, and that's gross domestic product. That's the way that we measure the productivity of our country. It's actually, uh, since we moved off of the gold standard, it's actually how our uh, dollar is valued. So the dollar is actually valued on GDP. It's it's this hypothetical fiat backing of the dollar, right? Because your dollar itself is just paper. You, you used to be able to exchange it for gold, but you can't anymore. And the de-dollarization uh, efforts are really printing too much of these dollars and not having GDP rise at the same time. We can talk about that on a different topic. But Here's the numbers. So you take 48 or call it $49 trillion, you divide it by the 26 uh, trillion annual uh, in GDP, and you get 182%. Well, what does that mean? Well, when you look at it over a chart, it means everything. So check out this chart. I want to show you this. I want to blow this up, especially for those of you who are uh, on my TikTok feed. So check this out. And this is going to be a little hard to see as I scroll over, but you can see this thing is just going left to right, up and down. Now these, this zero is when you're at parity. It's when GDP and uh, total stock value are at parity. So in order for this to happen, we would have to have one of two things happen, right? We would have to have, let's go back to this. You'd have to have either the total market value go down to 26, trillion in GDP, that would be parity, that would be zero. Or you'd have to get GDP to climb all the way to 48 trillion, and that would bring you to perfect parity. So what happens when they're not at parity, like right now, they're at 182%, the Buffett indicator uses this to value, are we overbought or are we oversold? Are we overvalued as the market as a whole? Or are we undervalued? Well, if you had to take a guess, 
Let me see if I can get this also to show this whole thing. But if you had to guess, are we overvalued or undervalued? What would you guess? Is the, is the stock market, is, have people put in too much money compared to the value of the actual stock or are stocks a bargain right now? Are they a deal? Well, this indicator explains it perfectly. Right now, far right, we're at 1.7, you know, 1.7 standard deviations above the trend. This is not only at what is called this overvalued section, a one of one or more over is overvalued. Two is strongly overvalued. And we just had one of the large, look how steep this climb is, guys. We just had one of the largest jumps, almost from 1.2 to 1.7 in a single month in this indicator. And we've been up here before. In fact, in November 2021, when rates were still really low, we were stimulating all this cash in the market. We actually hit a peak similar to the peak during the dot-com crash. And for those of you who were investing or were alive during the dot-com, uh, this was a time where people were buying just stupid crap, right? Like people were buying domain names for millions of dollars. People were buying uh, future uh, online business shopping things that never came to fruition. There was just so much money going into startups that never came to fruition in the dot-com boom and bust. And this is the, a very similar reading as what we are at now. We came off of it, which was actually good news. If you guys remember the stock market as a whole, the S&P 500 actually dropped significantly. I can show you some charts here in a minute. But the fact that it spiked back up is now showing we're, we just threw a bunch of cash back into the stock market, but these stocks are not giving us a return. Now, I had someone argue with me uh, earlier this week that we shouldn't be looking at this chart anymore. We should be looking at future PE. We should be looking at the future earnings. And I, I don't know how many of you guys have been in this industry or been in finance long enough, but there's something about a future earning that somehow just gets stimulated and overcooked and promoted in a way that just is not real. We call it future valuations and the valuations we're putting on, let's say the S&P 500 as a whole, or you know, everyone's betting on AI right now and it's gonna make GDP go through the roof. It's like, well, maybe, maybe. I'm not saying it will or won't, I'm just saying maybe. So what is this a sign of? What, what can I do with this information? Uh, you buy down here, you sell up here. I mean, that's a simple way to read this tool. You buy when things are undervalued, right? You sell when things are overvalued. You buy low, you sell high. And when GDP is at where it's at right now, there's so much cash in the market that frankly is not reflecting its actual value. So this is a, some people would call this an actual uh, value stance, that I have, and I do, I'm a value investor. Uh, Benjamin Graham, like, do I have his book here? I don't, but Benjamin Graham is uh, one of the authors I'd recommend if you guys haven't read his book. Uh, Warren Buffett recommends it, talks all about value investing. This is, th these are the charts that these people use uh, for this. So I thought this was fascinating and this data shows that we're overcooked. There's a chart on here I wanna show you guys about recessions. And this indicator, oh, let me go back actually. 
So if you if you bring this in, I'm gonna go down. Oh yeah, price earnings. By the way, this is PE. This is the PE ratio. If you go on a stock, um, typically like on TradingView or any chart, it will show its PE ratio, which is the same idea as the Buffett indicators, taking the price and dividing it over earnings, which gives you an, a, this kind of number uh, that you can compare to other companies. Like, wow, am I really getting that good of a return? on uh, the price that I'm paying for the stock. And so price earnings model, overvalued, same spike, interest rate model, uh, interest rates model is just overvalued. It's not actually that bad uh, compared to the current GDP levels. S&P 500 mean reversion model, also overvalued. Let me show you what I actually wanted to show you. Let's see if I can find this chart. Ah, recession indicator. This is the one. I want you guys to see this. This is a this is a tough chart to look at, but I think it's worth noting. This is uh, the U.S. Treasury yield spread, so the ten-year to three-month spread. And this chart. Let me actually go back out of this to give you guys some context. So. The U.S. Treasury yield is currently inverted, meaning short-term interest rates are higher than long-term interest rates. And this unusual occurrence called a yield curve inversion has historically been a very reliable indicator of an upcoming economic recession. Let me show you how reliable. So, if you look at U.S. Treasury yield spreads, 10-year to three months, so this is comparing the 10-year to the three-month, you can see that back in the 70s, when we had this spike and it went over the 0% inversion point past, you know, you can see the standard deviations going both ways, but past the first level standard deviation. So it's like one, somewhere between one and 2% because they invert this guy, somewhere between one and 2%, you can see is kind of the zero land, uh, landing. But when you get into the negative one standard deviation, so this is like a flip chart of what we just saw, okay? So the, the percentages are gonna be the opposite on the left side. But when you see it go up into the red, we typically, this gray area shows how long of a recession we had after that event. So back in the 70s, Yields hit uh, like a negative 0.22%, not even that far out of the standard deep, the first level standard deviation. What happened after that? We had a full year of recession. And 74 happened again. How long did we have a recession for? Until just after 75. Same thing happened in the 80s, right around when I was born. Uh, what happened after that? A short recession for about six months. Happened again around 82. How long do we have a recession for? About two years. Happened again. And guys, this is like, it barely even goes over. In the 90s, had another recession. Dot com, had a little micro recession. 2008, had another recession. COVID, like a one month recession. Guys, look at where we are sitting. We are above, did we have an all time high? 188, I just want to see this. 191, we are from, so this is an all-time high since 1981. All-time high since 1981. What is that? 40, 
almost 42 years that we're an all-time high. Do you think, I mean, how, how many times has this been wrong? Uh, never. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It's predicted the last eight recessions over since the 70s with perfect accuracy. Perfect, like impeccable accuracy. We are at an all-time high. What are the odds we go into recession based on this past data? Again, I can't tell you that this is financial advice, but it does not look great. It, it just doesn't. This, this is really bad news, guys, for the economy. Um, I'm hoping, I know you guys probably can't see this over here, but I'm hoping that we get past this. This spike is dangerous territory and it has come down a little, but it just doesn't matter anymore. The fact that we broke out of that first standard deviation is rule enough that we are going to go into a recession based on the 10 year to three month spread. Um, yeah, fun chart, right? How many of you guys even knew about this chart? Like this is brilliant. So the, the website is currentmarketvaluations.com. And I go here, I probably check here like once a month just to get caught up uh, to make sure that like something hasn't changed. And as you guys can tell, just this week, things changed. The Buffett indicator hit this spike and I'm really concerned about that. What, what, what should you be doing? Worst case scenario, I would say be looking at your portfolio, be looking at your assets you have invested. I'm not saying pull everything out. I'm not saying buy a bunch of stuff, but this might be a really good time to reevaluate all your numbers reevaluate where you think the future is going to be, maybe your timing on when you think things are going to turn over uh, and then go from there. All right. So just wrapping things up, guys, I want to show you one thing that we're going to be going over next week. It's very rare that I get this data uh, right now. So I want to show you guys this. Let me go in here really quick. So every second Friday, I do our real estate uh, podcast. And last month i brought on a friend of mine that i do a bunch of real estate investing uh with keen schultz and next friday i'm going to be going over this data but this data is hot it's hot right now it's live off the press so if you guys have access uh this is a live google sheet that i've shared with the public you can get access to this but i want to give you a sneak pre uh a sneak peek or preview into what's going to be happening next Friday, because I will spend the entire meeting going over this data, as I'm one of the first people to get this data hot off the press, you will not hear the news about this for another couple of weeks. Just remember that I said that. So you're hearing it here first. Um, median list price, guys, came off of its all-time high. So this chart right here, median list price, let me show this for my online viewers here. But median list price here, and by the way, if you're if you're on my webinar, you can scan this QR code. If you are on TikTok, you can scan that guy right there. I'll kind of leave it like this so you can see it. What's that? Maybe like this. What's that? Yeah, that's good. So hopefully, hopefully you can hear me over there. But um, this chart shows that we have come off of a tabletop. We've come off of a peak. And if you look at year over year, and we're going to talk a lot about this in depth next week, we have come off of an all-time high. Year over year, we've actually had a, a percentage decline. So we have not seen growth in the U.S. housing market over the last 12 months. 
the idea that we were going to hit new highs, everything was going to keep growing. Oh, this supply demand thing. You can never wreck the U.S. housing market. I'm calling bullshit. This is a shift. We are seeing a change in trend. We are no longer, this is a very strong indication that we are no longer in the old trend of the median price continuing to increase. And you guys know why. You already know why. Interest rates are through the roof. Go look at what it would cost you to have the house you're sitting in right now. Like just based on today's rates, it's very likely you would be downsizing in your house. So I want to show, show you this and then just a couple other charts, let you guys get onto your day and then we'll, we'll go through this in detail uh, next week. One of the things that I saw that was unique about uh, the data that came in is price reductions have uh, climbed again. And this is typically not the season that you see price reductions come up. The pending ratio is also dropping. When the pending ratio was really high, it was, so this is, how do I want to say this? If you're hearing news that, that we don't have enough supply of homes based on demand and that it's getting worse, this chart actually shows you the truth month to month. Like this is every month what supply and demand looks like. Yes, when we were back in 2001, 2002, you can see these two spikes, we had a problem. We had a massive supply shortage and tons of demand. That is dropping. It did spike. And by the way, it dropped a ton last winter. If we have a similar reaction to the housing market that we had last winter, this is going to drop into the zeros and possibly for the first time in over a decade into the negative. And that means that this whole supply demand thing that everyone's been touting could never be fixed. We have a massive shortage of homes in this country. If this does the same thing off of the high from last year into December, because if you look, this was, so right now here's uh, April, right? April, May, this was April, May. If we have the same amount of drop into the winter, into December, we are going to be way down here, which means supply of homes is going to be way higher. Now, uh, I'm gonna wrap things up on this without, without talking about it too much, but I wanna share one last thing before we get off. Uh, what would cause this to tip? What would cause the next housing crash? Because everyone's saying, you know, it, we don't have these arm loan problems or these re-issues. We don't have these uh, subprime mortgage or subprime backed mortgage uh, issues that were being sold to investors at a profit and banks giving loans to people that frankly couldn't qualify, uh, but did it because they could sell it to investors. None of that's going on. I get that. We don't have these subprime mortgages that are coming due in three years that's going to balloon. I get that also. But we have so many other unique things that are that are bubbles. We have an inflation bubble. We have an interest rate hike bubble. We've got a, you, you saw on the overvalued chart, we have this bubble. We have got a 10-year to three-month treasury uh, bubble, right? We've got a looming recession. You add this one factor, and this is the one data point I watch the most, is unemployment. Set your calendars for it, because the, the month, the quarter that we get unemployment data that shows that we're finally going back, I would even say into normal territory, normal unemployment territory. That's the moment that things get bad. When we get normal unemployment levels and uh, 
have all the same data, all the same problems, that's, I think, going to be the tipping point because the moment people feel contraction and they can't afford their homes because they're now unemployed, that's the bubble that I think is going to cause the domino effect of the house, the downturn in the housing market. I'm not calling for a great recession. I'm not, I don't think it's possible to have a downturn like we had in 2008 with just unemployment. However, I think uh, it will be the domino and it's just not possible for us to stay where we're at. Uh, I've got time to show you guys this. Let me show you one more thing to kind of just drive this point home. Let's do. I'm gonna. What I'm doing is I'm bringing up the unemployment chart because let's see if I can get it from here. Yeah, yeah. Here we go. This will work. I'm gonna share this on my screen so you guys can see it. But if you are watching the current unemployment, everyone's like, oh, things are so hard. Things are so tough. Things are so tight, right? A lot of us are talking about how tight things are also. But if you look at the unemployment rate, we are at 3.5%. 3.5. Historically, we are in like the four to five range. In fact, right before the last recession, the lowest unemployment was, was at 4.4%. Before the last recession, before things got bad, before the housing market crashed, 4.4%. You add 1%. So unemployed people were at like 5.8 uh, 5 million, right? At, at uh, 5.8. You bring up 1% and this number gets astronomical. I mean, it's just, it's an insane number at that point. And so I... I really think, and here's the, the data on this, I really think at some point we're going to have to go back into normal unemployment numbers. And everyone keeps saying, well, you know, AI is going to fix GDP. AI is going to do all uh, new technology. It's going to be our saving grace, fixing the de-dollarization, getting our country back on track. Okay, well, when we disrupt all these jobs with new technology, is unemployment going to go up? Or is it going to go down? And it's like really clear. It's going to go up and we're not at normal levels. The feds, Jerome Powell, the guy I was just talking about, does not like where, where the unemployment rate currently is. It's too low. No, no, no. That sounds crazy. It sounds like an awful thing to even say. Like, wait a minute. You're telling me there's like a number of unemployment that we should be up, like above for things to be going well? And the answer is yes. In order for you, the average American, to be feeling better in your wallet and have uh, cost of goods lower and like your housing prices come down and interest rates to start dropping, unemployment needs to be higher than it's been since January of 2022. It needs to be back at the 4% level. And so the feds are going to do a lot with rates right now to get inflation to drop. But as soon as I would say inflation comes down into that like 3% level, my guess is their next target is going to be unemployment. And they're going to get accused of killing jobs. They're going to get put on live television about how they're hurting people, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is for the average American, it will be better because there's a natural number of unemployment that needs to exist in the market as a whole for things to go well. And you guys have seen this. So just wrapping things up, guys. Thanks for being on here. Had a lot to cover. Next week, we're going to be here same time, same place, but going over 
our uh, Friday real estate forecast. And I might try to bring in another investor friend of mine uh, that I do real estate investments with uh, across the country. And uh, yeah, that kind of wraps things up for today. Let me do this for some of our viewers. I'm going to bring up, for those of you who are live on here, I'm going to bring up some of these QR codes that you can scan. So you guys can subscribe to my channel on YouTube. And next time, if you felt like this was kind of hacky or uh, a little hard to watch, this is the, the QR code you guys can scan. And what that gives you is uh, access to my YouTube channel that we're live on right now. Obviously, I love having you guys on Zoom. My whole TikTok live thing, this is the first time we went live. Thanks for being on with me today. Bearing with me on this uh, TikTok live experience. Would love to hear your feedback also, by the way, those of you who join me on uh, TikTok. But that wraps things up uh, on our Market Pulse podcast today, guys. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for uh, participating. Please drop any comments in the comment section below, whether it's on my YouTube channel, on TikTok posts, Instagram feed, Twitter, LinkedIn. Uh, I'm everywhere. Drop your comments, questions. Uh, last week, I did a whole basket. In fact, I don't know where it went, but I did a whole basket of your guys' questions. And frankly, if you're having them, I would be happy to be the one that answers them. So thanks again for being on here. We'll see you next Friday and uh, happy weekend.